0: Hello, welcome to today's Employer Advisory Podcast, taking a closer look at the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, specifically the provisions impacting employers. My name is Annette Bechtold, and I'm the Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Compliance at One Digital. As you know, this series of advisory sessions has been in response to a rapidly changing economic and health landscape where business and HR leaders have been forced to take unprecedented actions to protect employees and their organization. The luxury of deliberating on key decisions vanished overnight, but the impact of those decisions will be key to survival. As leaders of the One Digital Advocacy team, our focus is to bring your voice to lawmakers and regulators and work to educate and effect positive change. With that, let's begin. Christmas gift that we got from Congress uh, on December 21st. Yay. I, it always happens before a holiday where they clean off the desks and get things together. And um, they were able to move for this 5,593 page appropriations bill, you know, to start off 2021, I guess, with a bang or whatever you might want to call, want to call it. Um, more work, uh, more things for us to learn and know. Uh, I think that This is just the beginning of what we'll see coming forward. We have a brand new Congress. We have all kinds of things. So this voluminous bill that we've got addresses not only congressional budget items, but it added a number of other components um, for private and health. Uh, Public health entities, along with COVID relief, they kind of wrapped it all together. And, uh, you know, that COVID relief had been so elusive for the latter half of 2020, and Congress wasn't able to get anything done. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to really focus on just the provisions of this, um, unless you want to take all day, we're going to just focus on the provisions that really uh, pertain to. The uh, benefit plans and and if you're a plan sponsor, whether you're a fully insured plan, if you have a self-funded plan, if you're a broker that's helping people with all different kinds of plans, whether it's, you know, uh, fully insured, self-funded, level funded, there's all kinds of things that make some impact to the benefit plans that are being offered. And then from an employment practices standpoint, there's some things employers just need to know, um, some changes coming forward, some... um, on the heels of the CARES Act, some extenders, those types of things. So we'll look at those. And then some I, I call them business applications. So these would be things that are more about the PPP loans, some of the things that I know our um, our clients uh, are really interested in. Some of you may uh, maybe get have have gotten PPP loans or might want to know if you're eligible for new ones. So we'll talk a little bit about those and some of the tax things we're not tax advisors um and so um nothing here can be should be construed as tax advice so please uh, this is just a starting place for you to kind of dig into the things you want to look at so let's look at um a continuing resolution so kind of let's just start with just a little bit of background on on that and so when we talk about um the continuing resolution it's it's a it's a methodology that's used by Congress. So every year the house and Senate have to pass 12 appropriation spending bills that are necessary to keep the government operating. So these, um, these 12 bills are like, um, you know, there's one for agriculture, one for defense, financial services. So these are all separate and it contains, they contain all of the funding necessary to, um, for, for the for the government to run, period. So when we kind of look at the fiscal year, which is what these address, the fiscal year for the government is 101 through 930. And so Congress has to pass these 12 spending bills to keep the government operating; otherwise, it shuts down. Now. Very often, they're not ready to do that. They're they're still negotiating by the time September 30th rolls around. And so they use what's called a continuing resolution to extend the current funding of the current budget. And they extend it forward for a particular time and say, hey, we're going to continue operating under the same rules we've been operating for this past year for a given time. Um, So it gives them more time to come up with with an agreement. And if it's not passed by September 30th, you know. Otherwise, without a continuing resolution, the government would shut down. So Congress can pass um, continuing resolutions for any period of time. It can be 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever they think that they need. And very often they pass multiple ones um, trying to get to the end game of having these uh, appropriation bills done. So. Um, The last time a budget was actually passed without a continuing resolution was back in 1996. And in fact, like in 2007, 11 and 13, they they used continuing resolutions the whole year and never actually passed a new budget. So um, very interesting how that works. So. In this case, none of the bills were passed before this, uh, or none of, uh, they weren't ready for September 30th, right? So what happened, uh, over this time is that they used four different continuing, uh, resolutions to extend the last year's budget. So they did it through 1211, the 1218, 1221, 1228, just giving them time to, uh, create all these modifications and these two spending bills. So the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, it, it was a culmination uh, or an add on to an old bill that was introduced, which they often do. of so drafting a new bill, they just tack on to an old bill. And so House and Senate really worked to resolve uh, most of their differences. They've been bickering about um, for quite a long time. Um, and there, there's still some issues that have come up uh, subsequent to that. So. Uh, They passed the bill, uh, both chambers on December 21st. And from there, it goes to the president's desk. And on on Christmas Eve, the president said, I don't think I want to sign it. Um, You need to reduce more of your spending on erroneous things and instead give a bigger stimulus check to to uh, the to the Americans. Um, So. Congress dug in their heels and said, "We're not changing it." So the president um, signed it into law anyway uh, on twelve twenty seven, um, irrespective of the fact that they didn't actually follow any of the the um, the suggestions. Let's put it there, <laughs> that he that he provided, and and that's just that's important to understand too is that the president is providing suggestions. Um, he can't change law. Um, in and of himself. He can veto things. But again, there's overrides to the vetoes as well. So We kind of saw all of the congressional activity and legislative actions at work here at the latter half of the year. So let's dig into this particular bill and um, look at uh, these benefit plan provisions. So particularly the things that have impact to benefits that I want to talk about is the Surprise Billing Act, um, which was incorporated into into this spending, the Broker Compensation Disclosure um, we'll talk about that temporary rules to extend flexible spending accounts and dependent care accounts. And then there are some other transparency things that'll be coming forward too. So I want to just make sure that you're all aware there. So in looking at, um, surprise billing, one of the things that, um, was interesting is that they took a bill that already existed actually and moved it forward. So surprise billing has long been a term assigned to two specific scenarios that affect individuals. Um, They encounter um, basically these large out-of-pocket costs because um, they've used a non-network Facility or provider, either because it was emergency and they went to the closest place or second, it was inadvertent. So in other words, I didn't choose that doctor. I just got assigned sign that doctor and the doctor's not in my network. And so that would be like your anesthesiologist, radiologist, pathologist, those types of people. So, um, and as a result, these people are getting large out of pocket because they're out of network physicians and they're getting these surprise bills is what they're called. So that's, that's really the scenarios that this this particular bill addresses, and over the years, um, you know, states have kind of taken it upon themselves to to address things for um, consumers, and and uh, so some states like um, California, Oregon, Washington. There's like 17 states who actually have really pretty good um, protections for consumers on these balance bills. Another 15 have some partial laws, um, and then um, and then there are some. Bills that don't have any laws at all. So, um, so with that, um, that's great that the states have some. But that would only impact fully insured plans. Uh, any self-funded plans, level plan, level-funded plans, those things are not subject to state laws. So, therefore, those protections don't pass to the consumers. So, that's kind of the the good piece about this. Um, so. What you know, one of the the problems that we've seen with these surprise bills um, is that it you know they really undermine the uh, the affordability of healthcare. They take advantage of you know people kind of when they're the most vulnerable, and that's very problematic for us. Um, and then also you know just things like um, you know patients, you know, being penalized for services rendered outside of their control. They're doing everything right in the plan, but, you know, they're getting penalized anyway. And then, of course, it does jeopardize, of course, the satisfaction that employees would have with their employer plan if they're getting these bills. So let's kind of dig into this. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, Richard is asking about ambulance. That's been a huge problem is that the ambulance prize bill, especially air ambulance, air ambulance, there are no air ambulances companies that are in that work. And that's because they can't negotiate because they're governed by the um, FAA. So there's been a whole hoo-ha. The cool thing that you'll see about this is they actually pulled pulled air ambulance in. So it's pretty exciting, um, I think, because those are some big, big bills that people are getting. Um, So uh, all parties have kind of agreed that, you know, given those problems with surprise billing that it was important to address. So here's um, here's the applicability. Now the, these rules go into effect for plan years on or after January 22nd, January 1st of 2022. So not this year. gearing up to be effective next January. In 2022. So it will apply to all grandfathered and grandfathered plant, all group health plans um, and insurance coverage, individual markets, small group, large group and self-insured plants. So so it applies to everybody. So this is the difference between a state law and uh, this federal law now. Now, so the interesting thing here is that only, you know, it applies to emergency services like we talked about. So if it's truly an emergency, you're taken to a facility or treat, uh, that's non-network or treated by a physician non-network in an emergency circumstance, that's covered by this particular surprise bill. For the ones we talked about where um, it's not an emergency and you're inadvertently treated, it only pertains to certain services, certain non-emergency services, and really those are tied to what kind of provider it is. So, um, and, and I'll kind of define those for you shortly, but what it says is for the emergency services, for these certain non-network services, patients will be obligated to pay the same level for in-network and out-of-network um, with regards to kind of their out-of-pocket costs. And then um, secondarily, then we've got allowable charges will be this median price um, that's allowed for in network providers for the same procedure in a same geographic region. So basically, there has to be an agreement that there's some sort of median price for a particular procedure in a geographic region. And that's That's all that can be charged. The out-of-pocket that goes with that. That's also what the what the um, insurer or the health plan would pay to um, the uh, would pay to the provider. Okay. Now, air ambulance, very similar, same network. You know, same level for a network again regarding the out-of-pocket, and also the out-of-pocket has to contribute to in-network deductible. So it, instead of those two out of pockets being separate, it will, um, it will contribute. And then the provider, then, then I'll talk about there, there are some kind of arbitration rules that go into play. If the provider and the insurance or the plan can't agree on what the reimbursement level is, but the thing to take away is that the patient is never involved. So, um, at the bottom of the slide, you kind of see who these certain services are. And so it would be your emergency med, anesthesiologists, hospitalists, assistant surgeons, all of those people brought in. So you can kind of see all the different ones. And anybody else, This the Secretary of Health and Human Services decides to put in the list in the final rules. Um, then uh, there are some for these non-emergency um, services. Uh, the, the rules don't apply so that they don't have to do this um, uh, if they're not one of those affiliated providers. So on that last screen at the bottom, if they're not one of those types of providers, they don't have to abide by this. Um, if the appointment for the person is at least 72 hours before the service and that provider satisfies all the notice and disclosure requirements, basically telling patients where, you know, we're not a network provider. Here's a list of network providers you could choose instead of us. Um, all of those things kind of you see on the left. As long as the um, provider gives those, then there this um, rule about having the same in-network Um, doesn't apply. Now, there's also a public notice requirement. It's got to be one page and clear, understandable language. And so, um, you should see that in a provider's office, you know, um, and then any other state laws. So, um, you know, Sean, you're asking about New Jersey's law and surprise billing. So, this is where that kind of sort of comes into play, is that within a public notice, a provider has to say, hey, here's Here's who we are. We're not networked. This is what we're obligated to tell you on a federal basis. But also here's what New Jersey's rules are about surprise billing or whatever the state is. So that information has to be readily available about state and federal agencies and, and what happens if the provider violates and gives the patient some right to do that. In addition, there's consent obligations. Um, so the patient has to actually sign consent um, uh, to that the service, they know the service is optional, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, the, uh, so, and then they have to provide a copy back of that signed consent that they have. So there's a, there's a process involved. Now this independent, um, you know, Kristen, you're talking about um, you've seen potential use of arbitrators who would be the arbiter um, and who pays for that. That's exactly a great question, because that, uh, we've been lobbying for a long time on this No Surprises Act it actually was introduced in 2019 that they wrapped in here into this uh, bill and made law. And that's been the big contention is arbitration versus this, you know, everybody pays kind of this median rate that you agree to for that particular service in the area. Um, And so they kind of blended them, but this arbitration process. Is typically more costly, and that's the concern that we had. Because regardless of who actually pays the charge, the health plan will end up getting the footing the bill at some point, and that's going to be passed through to the consumer somewhere. And that's been a lot of the things that we've we've put forth back to uh, the legislators and the lawmakers. So you can kind of see this independent review process that they have, this arbitration process. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because. The rules aren't out there yet. The Secretary of Health and Human Services, Secretary of Labor, and Secretary of Treasury have to get together, which, by the way, they don't very often, and they don't really play all that well together. They are typically separate entities. Um, but so when they do have to get together for rulemaking, when they're all involved in a particular rule, it does take longer, just because you have more more people at the table. You know how that works in your your own organizations. And so um, to come to consensus and and to you know takes time however it does allow you to see all the different perspectives so i think that that's that's good but as you can see they have two huge things they've got to do so by july 1st of 2021 um these collective departments have to create the methodology to determine um you know these qualifying payments right so um what is this median rate what how does that work etc and so that becomes really important and then um, that methodology is critical for the whole thing working, and then, um, and then an audit program. Then they kind of audit everybody, so they got to come up with this audit program. So, uh, in October, so well, there's a lot to follow here. Um, in thinking about uh, the. The transparency of this cost. There are some things that kind of float back to the plans. So here's what's important for you to understand. There are requirements for group health plans um, and health insurance. So this would be self-funded as well as fully insured um, to provide in, you know, clear writing within the plan document and also on ID cards, any deductible applicable to the plan, uh, any out-of-pocket, you know, maximum limitations that might be applicable. And then finally, you know, the telephone number and, um, and contact and the website, et cetera, um, that consumers can go to get, you know, more information. So that's one of the requirements to the plans that we'll see. And then the uh, another one is that Each plan has to be able to provide an advanced explanation of benefits. So an advanced EOB, sort of like a pre-treatment estimate. You see dentists use them a lot. Here's what this would cost, you know. Um, And um, it used to be, uh, actually, uh, before managed care, this used to be a pretty – Normal thing for anything that was a large bill, there'd be a sort of this pre treatment that estimate uh, and cost obligation estimate that used to come in from a provider to, uh, to uh, on behalf of a patient, to the insurance company so that people would know what the out of pocket costs are. That's resurrecting itself again here. So that's going to be a thing where um, any out of network provider, um, or I guess it verifies whether they're in or out of network. So people know ahead of time, here's the cost, the estimated good faith estimate for the procedure you're going to have done. Here's what it would, uh, what deductible out of packet you can anticipate based on what you've already satisfied. And then, um, you know, what other options do you have, um, and what the contracted rate is. You know, so what are your obligations? So, that's uh, important. And then anybody who's maintaining a, a network, whether it's an insurer or whatever, that the, the insurance network has to the provider directories have to be reviewed every ninety days. They have to be accurate at the, you know, and so those estimates come back at the, um, you know, saying. Is this truly an in or out of network will be more accurate. And then there has to be this ability to be able to call in and get an internet price comparison. So all of this stuff, we'll see lots of rulemaking come forward. So remember in uh, all of your, all the laws that get passed, the, uh, these are frameworks so they kind of define the what. They don't necessarily always define, define the how. And so the how is what's done through rulemaking and where the departments, um, you know, the executive branch departments come into play, like Department of Health and Human Services, Treasury, and Departments of Labor. That's the ones that really govern all the the. Um, rules that affect us for the most part in the benefits world and so it, we're waiting on them to give us more of the how to so expect to see all of those start to roll out um, all throughout the year so there'll be there'll be new rulemaking coming forward out of this so we don't necessarily always have all the house um, Kind of clicking through some of these rules and changes and extensions so there were some temporary rules that extend on the flexible spending account so, Employers may opt for these, these are not required, but the new rules permit an employer to allow people to use any unused 2020 contributions. So if you have, uh, you have people have money left in their FSA, they're able to, um, they would be able to, if the employer changes their plan document to continue to use those uh, funds into 2021, and also, same with 2021, uh, using them into the, into 20, throughout the year of 2022. So again, the employer can do that. It allows um, so it allows either the extension of the grace period to extend 12 months. Uh, 12 months. So you've got the carryover option. So it depends what flexible spending account um, rules you're using. If you uh, use the carryover. As an employer, you have the opportunity to let people uh, use any of their unused contributions into the next calendar year for both um, 2020 and 2021, or plan years, rather. And and if you have the grace uh, grace period instead, you have the option of extending that to 12 months um, after the end of each plan year and applies to both 2020 and 2021 plan years. So... It just allows people more time to use these FSA dollars that they've uh, set out and also their dependent care dollars. It's the same. So um, the important thing here is that they're all mutually exclusive. So you can decide... Oh, I want to just carry, uh, I do want the extension for carryover for unused 2020, but I'm not going to do that next year. You can do that. Um, uh, Or I don't want any of them. So, or I want both of them. So these are all kind of stand by themselves. um, And if I, and what do I want to do for dependent care? Do I want to let them use whatever they, contributions they made um, that they didn't get to use into the next year? So... The employer can figure those out. The other thing is allowing individuals who terminate during that plan year to receive reimbursements through the end of the plan year in which they uh, in which they terminated. So any. Um, unused contributions that they had, they can continue to use if they terminate it. Again, optional for the employer for both of those plan for the calendar years of 2020 and 2021. Um, there is a special carry forward on the dependent care as well. So um, it extends the ability to submit claims uh, for 2021 expenses um, for a child who has unused about balance who attains age 13 so it's up to age 14 which is a year longer than what the standard um carry forward is it's um up to age 12 so it's before you reach age 13 so this extends it for another year so if uh the child attains age 13 they can still use the um the funds, and then it, it does permit plans to allow employees to protest prospectively change their contributions without having any sort of change in status. They could just decide, "Hey, I want to stop, um, I want to stop contributing, or whatever." So they're allowed to do that for both FSA and um, the. Or I'm sorry, just for the dependent carryover. We saw that already, um, and this just uh, solidifies or codifies that, but. The only way that those the employer has to do plan amendments here, so there has to be a plan amendment. You kind of see the rules for those plan amendments, um, and then the plan has to continue to operate under those terms. So, kind of the the order to go in is: plans should look at their FSA, their dependent care, and decide. Okay, we have these two, these couple of options. What do we want to extend, if anything? If they don't want to extend anything, there's nothing that they have to do. If they do want to extend, um, they probably should notify their employees and say hey we're considering extending these things we'll tell you what we finally decide then they need to communicate that so people understand whether they have to use up all their dollars or not use their dollars today and then um and then uh last step because they can do a retroactive plan amendment is to work with whoever their administrator is um if you don't have one we can help you out there um to do um this plan amendment to reflect those changes okay um Extended FMLA, as well as the tax credits that go with it, are extended um, if the employer wants to. So this is also optional. The employer can choose to um, extend the payment eligibility through March 31st, subject to all the other same rules of FCA. Nothing changes on how much sick time, when you can take it, what the rules are and all that. Um, But if they want to allow um, people to continue to use what's available through March 31st, they can. So it also extends the tax credits that accompany that um, as well. So uh, if they're extending the benefit, uh, the existing benefit through March 31st, Um, they wouldn't get like a new 10 days or anything. They're just existing. uh, uh, They're, uh, they're allowing people the opportunity to continue to take advantage of that original uh, the original emergency um, paid sick and, and family medical leave uh, through March 31st, rather than it expiring at the end of last year. And again, Uh, And it also applies to self-funded, so uh, and or self-funded, self-employed, and they and self-employed can also um, use earnings from a prior taxable year rather than the current taxable year when they're. When they're claiming the the tax credit, so just some extensions to help people utilize the benefits that were laid out for a little bit longer. That's all that that is. Okay, uh, same thing on unemployment. There's an extension and a phase out on that, so you can kind of see that it extends the uh, benefits to anybody currently on unemployment. Uh, Um, to March 14th. And so it it also expanded that relief to government entities and nonprofit organizations. Um, It limits pandemic unemployment assistance to any week prior to April 5th. So by April 5th of 2021, no more of the pandemic Pandemic unemployment, so it does increase those number of uh, weeks eligible to fifty, and there's an additional three hundred dollars per week um, for the weeks starting December twenty sixth through March fourteenth. So it does give a little bit of extension, and then says then then we're done. On uh, the employer student loans, um, there's also um, if you have, if uh, the employer has is providing student loan repayment, um, they can do continue to do so on a tax free basis. There are some additional um, uh, payment opportunities after, you know, starting in uh, the calendar year of 2021. Um, the employer can contribute up to 5250. to uh, 50 toward the employee's student loan repayment, you know, and those are excluded from employees income. So it continues to do that. Um, And then it um, does talk about, you know, uh, this applies to the student loan payments made by any employer on behalf of the employees after this date of enactment, but before January 1st of 2026. So it kind of extends this whole credit for another five years. And then the last one, last credit here is really, on uh, for other. So don't think about the f- family's first coronavirus r- response act, that emergency. This is other, other paid, uh, and, uh, paid family and medical leave. So it would extend the tax credit for employers who, who do provide, um, family and medical leave to their employees. And a lot of States require it. So it does, um, extend the, the tax credit. So, um, it would be equal to the wages that they're paying people while they're on family medical leave. Um, and so you can see they extend the credit um, for uh, four years, or yeah, 2021 20, through 25, five, five years. Okay. Um, and then um, on the business applications, there were some expansions for the Paycheck Protection Program. So, and uh, some a few extensions on payroll tax and employee ta- retention credits. So if we look at um, the PPP extensions, they would apply to the amount. There's new amount rules, eligibility, what it can be used for, covered period and application. So kind of quickly running through these. Um, if people, you know, if people had a PPP loan, but they didn't use the whole, the full loan amount, right, they can apply, let's say they only use some and then um, they ended the loan, whatever they were originally eligible for, they can go back and reapply for that difference and get that money, um, if they return some of that loan money, whatever they were originally eligible for and that they didn't use, they can go back and reapply for that as well. And then um, they could also kind of uh, go back through and ask to modify the, the up to the maximum amount of the loan. So if they were approved for a certain amount, but they only took a lesser amount, they could go back and, and get the difference. Um, on the eligibility side, um, they would have to be in operation, have to have been in operation on February 15th of 2020 to be eligible. Um, they did finally, finally for us, actually put into the law, what does group insurance mean for those? Um, and it is now, uh, they did now recognize that includes not only health care, but includes group life, death, disability, vision, or dental. And so that's a nice um, clarification that we've been missing for a while. And then on the applicable usage, it does expand to um, services, uh, you know, like covered operation services. And these were proposed by the um, SBA uh, last year during the PPP, but this uh, more or less just kind of codifies this and says, okay, this is part of the law that you're allowed to you're allowed to to expand that coverage to include, you know, um, covered operations, um, property damage of, so you know, vandals, destroying property, which we've seen a lot of that. those are uh, that's an applicable use for um, your PPP loan dollars um, if you had to. Um, Take precautions like you're putting in plastic glass for your workers, all of those, all the things kind of that go with um, covering kind of the day to day operations, any property damage, new supplier costs that you didn't have to have or you didn't spend for due to, due to the uh, pandemic. And then any covered worker protection, those things are all allowable now. Um, and then also it reaffirms this covered period, um, the covered period for the loan. It originally was eight weeks, then it got extended to 24. And so if you had loans um, originating after January f- or June 5th, um, you could only take the 24 weeks. And then if it was before you got your choice. Now, basically what they said was forget it. Just it. It's it's anywhere up to 24 weeks. You can, any number of weeks you want up to 24 weeks for your covered period that you decide as the a, as a, uh, loan recipient. And then um, it applies, now this new, these new extensions apply to covered loans up to $150,000. Um, they're going to be forgiven if you can certify within 24 days of enactment, yet you retained all of your employees, you know, the estimate of what you spent on payroll and an attestation or certification and documents and compliance, or that you have all the documents and compliance records as laid out. So it provides a little bit of additional uh, um, help. Now um, the other thing is there's a second draw loan. So people who had loans, I'm not going to go through all this, but um, there'll be more coming out on this. But just suffice it to say that if you had a PPP loan, it's already satisfied, you're finished, it got forgiven, whatever, you can apply for a second uh, PPP loan. And this applies to um, uh, those that have, you know, employers that don't have more than 300 employees, Um The, uh, and you can see, uh, had, uh, the second bullet there were with receipts during first, second, third, um, quarters, um, that are not less than 25%, you know, reduction from gross receipts of the entity during the same prior quarter. So you're kind of looking back at comparing quarter to quarter and then, um, you can only have one covered loan running at a time, um, so it it does um, it does exclude a few folks. Also, it excludes um, um, any entities in lo- that are doing lobbying activity, or um, you know anything that has to do with uh, influencing. Um, government, etc. Um, so those are those are different. But it's two million dollars is the maximum, or a payroll calculation of two and a half times, you know, the average total monthly payment for payroll costs incurred, um, or you know, in the one year period uh, made prior to. And then you can kind of see there's some different qualifiers if you're a seasonal employer, or if um, the entity didn't exist, in, you know, prior to February fifteenth of twenty twenty, or, 2020 or food service, excuse me, I'm going to sneeze, sorry, (laughs) food service or hospitality. Um, starting uh, anything that has an NAICS code, those kind of industries gets three and a half times. So you can kind of see those. And that full loan is forgivable if at least sixty uh, percent is spent on payroll costs. So it's a whole new loan. Um, uh, what I would say is that it those second draw loans um, to be eligible, you have to have had a first round loan, obviously, because can't be second if you didn't have first. Um, and um, and that you've used up the whole first before you get a second, you know? Um, So that's how that goes. On payroll taxes, there is a delay there. Um, Employers and self-employed can defer their social security tax, right? We knew that, uh, that are paid to employees. during the period of September 1st ending through April 30th. It was pre, uh, previously December 31st. So they've just extended that deadline out um, throughout through uh, April 30th so that uh, the payroll tax delay is allowed. Again, this is just delaying paying those payroll taxes. Okay, and then um, you can see the limit there on the thresholds of $4,000 for biweekly pay period. Taxes uh, have to be withheld and then they can be paid back between January 1st of 2021 and April 30th of uh, 2021. And then interest is going to start accruing in 2022. So it gives time to pay those back. And then the last really extension is on this employee retention. Credit. So um, allow it's a Allowed against applicable employment taxes for each calendar year, so equal to 70%. It used to be only 50%. So the maximum you could get um, was $10,000 total. Now it's 10, the maximum is $10,000, 70% up to a maximum of $10,000 per quarter. So it's quite a bit higher than what it was before. So something definitely look into if you're not, if you don't have a PPP loan um, or, uh, or have exhausted the PPP loan. Um, And then the maximum credit, again, 7,000. So 70% of the first um, 10,000. And uh, again, per quarter, like we said. Uh, So anybody, it's available to employers whose operations were fully or partially suspended due to the COVID shutdown and whose gross receipts are less than 80% um, of what they were. So this is really helping the the businesses that are really... um, have really been severely impacted so with that we'll close this podcast but please remember that as you need it one digital strategic workforce consultants are here with expert guidance and support to help you navigate through the next few months don't hesitate to reach out and learn more once again i'd like to remind you all that you can access our other employer advisory podcasts and sessions on our website Stay safe, healthy, and stay connected with your family, friends, and coworkers. And we'll see you next time.